Yeah, you two seem like you don't quite know what you're doing. I would agree with that. <laughs> this is Christian, especially. <laughs> this is always the case. I'm surprised by this because when the fi- the final product sounds so professional and polished. <laughs> You haven't been listening, clearly. (laughs) (laughs) We know what we're doing. It's just, you know, we can be slow to warm. I understand. Yeah. So you're not going to lead off by asking me to describe this case, are you? I I would not recommend No, in fact, we're going to do follow-up. Yeah, we've got got follow-up from listeners. And we've got a whole issue that you... Don't have to speak on? No, that you you may not be prepared for, but you will have wonderful thoughts about. (laughs) Awesome. So what are we going to start with? I I think we've got to start with knees. With Nice, that's right, the knee defender. Mm-hmm. So, oh my, we, meaning this podcast, like all other parts of American media, have been seized by knee defender fever and the uh, kerfuffles about diverted aircraft or people reclining their seats and fights ensuing therefrom. And, uh, and so we've received a bunch of emails from people about their thoughts on our knee defender segment. And there have been all kinds of articles online about the economics of reclining and not reclining that i've been sending christian just and posting a, just to our facebook a, just as an aside we are the nation's leading podcast on um speed trap law i know and that was and, true already right right and so i think this is our knowing that people say let's you know people want to know what do the speed trap guys think about this issue because it that seems was my related. first thought when yeah. i saw it on the yeah. news especially given how rapidly some people recline their seats on airplanes that it's especially fitting that speed trap people uh comment on that well, I think I was I was just thinking that it it um it calls for a judgment about other people's monstrous social behavior. But that too, <laughs> right? And and where law is only ambiguously related right. and and applies uncertainly. So rather than march through individual messages, I think we've received too many and I've certainly sent you links and put on Facebook links to many many pieces on the web and I do think it's a really fun issue. Uh, because it engages, as you say, it engages mor- morality, it engages anger at airlines, which is a hardy perennial of American life. Um, and so rather than march through all that, let me just say this, because I think two insights... You're not going to give shout outs to the listeners who took time to write No, it? there were many of them, and they're all consider themselves collectively shouted out at. Yeah. Moving on. I'll mention their names next time, okay. since you were unable to do so. Right. Because I value our listeners. Too. I do too. Mm-hmm. And you're suggesting that I don't is an outrage. <laughs> um, but putting that to one side... Oh, we're uh, back. We're back. <laughs> it's warm up accomplished. Because um, now you pissed me off. Um, but here's what I think has boiled to the surface of this great reclining on the airplanes debate. What has boiled to the surface are two important points. First, this is almost entirely the responsibility of the airlines. They are almost entirely to blame for all the bad about around all of this. And you would think that the cost of diverting an airline to a new landing location, which is in the tens, if not the hundreds of thousands of dollars, you would think that they would be getting the insight here that they ought to make a different decision. That's point one. Point two, a point Christian has made, others have made a very, very important point. The fundamental reason to blame the airlines is because that what they have done is they have sold the same thing to two different people. That thing is the space between you and the seat in front of you. You think they've sold it to you as the person in the seat. The person ahead of you thinks they've sold it to them by giving them a reclining button. This is not a recipe for success. Selling the same very precious resource in a packed container where people are basically reduced to rats in a bag. I, I love air travel, Joe. Yeah. As I was saying, mm-hmm. 
this is not a recipe for success to sell the same precious thing yes. to multiple people. Not good. Right. I'm done. We're <laughs> Thus passes away the well, what do you think about this? So, so one of the one of the things we were sent uh, didn't didn't listener David send you the link to that um, article by uh, law prof about the coast responding to the New York Times piece about the coast theorem and basically yes. lambasting that for a very simple view of the coast theorem. Yeah, there was a there was a, a blog post about it, uh, and this is Neil Buchanan, one of the co bloggers with Dorfon Law, right, which is right. a great blog because Michael Dorf is a genius and a great obviously a great writer and. So go read his blog. Go read Neil Buchanan's post about. Got to get him on the show, including oh, that would be good. Yeah, of course. Uh, including this post about yeah the airline seats and how Josh Barrow had a bit of a fail by going <laughs> by reaching for sloppy coasts sloppy. and using it to you know just be an arrogant jerk, as so many people have done. Right, as so many people have reached for the sloppy coasts. And wound up just well, being I, arrogant jerks. Sh- should I put some meat on this? This sounds very, I'm sound very condemnatory today. I'm you really did, on my high you sound, horse. You sound judgy, and I, I think I'm I got ex- you in that mood. Yeah, you did get me. I think going I'm there. to blame. So you and people haven't blame. even heard from our guest yet. So we're just gonna. That's gonna be a surprise. Okay. Because if you think if you think that uh, my regular co-host, dear listeners, can get angry with me over my opinions and views and. <laughs> <laughs> just, just wait. You, you, just, you've heard nothing you, yet. You've heard nothing yet. Although all of our special guests, although all of our friends have um, before. Yes. Yeah. So, Richly deserved, by the way. Oh, I, I'm sure it's always deserved. You. Yeah. I'm, I, I admit it. I'm. You probably, have a I'm, special gift for riling righteous people. <laughs> uh, so what? I guess what? Um, is it Josh Barrow. He's the one who wrote the New York Times piece. Is yes. That right? Okay. So. So his claim is like, uh, like you say, sloppy coast, which is that, okay, so there are two people, they can't get along uh, with respect to this shared resource, and the answer is, you know, I've got the recline button. And so pay me. So if you don't like it, pay me, and the fact that you haven't paid me shows that, in fact, you don't value this Yeah, it shows much. that no one really cares. Right, because if, if people cared that I recline, they would pay me, which is ridiculous It kind of in a way. I mean, maybe he knew it was ridiculous in a way, but um, uh, were you going to say something? No. That's our first hint of our guests. It's so exciting. <laughs> so, so exciting. Um, and, and so that is what you say. Slop, uh, what you describe as sloppy coast, I think, is the second part of Coase's article. Um, this idea that it doesn't matter how you allocate the entitlement to something that people are kind of squabbling over. Because however you allocate it, people will correct you by uh, getting into bargains after the fact. And whoever values the thing, whoever values the widget most will end up with it in a world without any transaction costs. And then a, a big criticism of what uh, Barrow has said is that, in fact, there are large transaction costs here, right? People don't want to enter into right. bargains because, you know, it's kind of uncomfortable to offer people money uh, in exchange for widgets in a situation where they don't normally do such a thing. And I think... Not, our, not least because they might think they already own it. I mean, yeah, that would be no. an exceptionally good reason for someone not to offer you money for something because they think it's already theirs. Yeah. See, Joe's right about everything except his starting point. Which is... Mm. Um, which is the person in the back has a reasonable basis to claim that they own that space. Okay. I, I do think it's, I, I do think that people, well, the evidence is people believe that right now, or they wouldn't be getting as angry as they're getting when people recline. And now you're, you can question the reasonableness of that belief. I think it's, um, I think it's not so much 
a belief based on what the airline conveys directly, I think that belief is the one of the person sitting ahead of them and it's conveyed by the button. So, the, well, so one, the, the, their belief is communicated by the airline. I think the belief is the one you walk on the plane with, which is um, normally people don't um, get within, a, you know, a cat's whiskers breadth of my face with big pieces of plastic. Because in normal life, that's true. Right. And you have to turn all that off when you're on the plane. And uh, most people find that hard to turn off. Well, but you claim that they think they have a right to it. Right. And as a legalized word. Um, and yeah. uh, I, I think it's equally coherent to say that people are very, very angry when people recline in their face. Um, because while they know that person has technically the right to decline in their face, they think they're being a real jerk for doing so. So that could justify the anger without being based on a belief that the airline has sold the same space to both of them. Could be. And I would posit it probably is. Okay. Because we get even more mad at people who are being assholes than people who um, are exercising rights. And and I think actually the – that is where – it's not just mad and more mad. I think it's actually not mad versus mad where – because people have this – if there were a good reason for that person to be reclining, I wouldn't actually be mad. Um, and so the, it's, it's a right that's sort of defeasible. Uh, they, they can take it if they need it. It's like a necessity idea. But when people take it without a necessity, they, they, it does feel, I'll speak for myself, it does feel like the person's taking something from me well, for what no it, good reason. What it, yeah, what it feels like is that uh, the button gives power to the person in front of you. Right, and, and they're abusing it when they use it with no. It's not well. You, yes, that I mean that's, that's an atti- that's an attitude toward it. But what yes. I'm saying is that what is unambiguous is that the person has a choice whether to recline, which benefits clearly benefits them and costs you, or not to recline, which may involve some sacrifice and it may not, depending on their attitude toward reclining. And so, what you can say without um, any deeper investigation is that a person who's hit the button and has reclined has made the calculation that they will give to themselves and take from you uh, um, relative to the um, status quo. And that, I think, touches on this idea that, um, that people exercise power in that way, touches on deep feelings we have about etiquette and about solidarity and and everything else. And that's why I think right. people actually get exercised about this. People really, yeah. you know, and you know, I certainly, when I'm on a plane, it just, it just seems to me that the, but the, the person who reclines in front of me is the very first person to recline on the entire plane every time. But I think Barrow's with the point Barrow would try to insist on perhaps wrongly, but he, I think he would try is you're, you're the one constructing this whole take from you. Like they're not giving to themselves by taking from you. They're simply using a thing that is theirs. So you so you can't just declare that you've got hit the right. bottom of the yeah, of yeah, the analysis. That's why I was going to say I think that what's really the the Cosian point in all this is is a different point that Coase made in his article, right? Which was against the much older idea that we could have a consistent theory of government regulation just by looking for places in which people were putting costs off on other people, an externality. So anytime you do something uh, that benefits you, but some of the costs are are borne by others. An externality. The answer is always, we'll just internalize that externality. As they, it's the lingo, right? So tax them, fine them, shift the costs so that they right. bear all the costs of their conduct. And what Coase <laughs> pointed out is that what's going on costs. in these situations is that people have conflicting plans and desires, right? They, yeah. So it's two people They're with respect to cost. some resource which is unambiguously, which is ambiguously kind of divided between them, 
both of whom want to use it, whether it's like light, whether it's like quiet what, versus noise, whatever it is, they have conflicting plans. And those needs and desires can't be satisfied at the same time. And so if you privilege one, you're harming the other. If you privilege the other, you're harming the one. There's just no way around this. A lot of times we don't recognize this because the because we take so for granted the moral theory that assigns to one party the entitlement and not. And I think we've done this before in the podcast, but this is like the nose punching example, right? So someone who really, really wants to punch somebody in the nose, right, has a preference for the use of my nose that I don't share, right? <laughs> we, have <laughs> right. Con- we have conflicting plans regarding this thing, right? But you're both causes of the conflict because they have a preference to use your nose and you have a preference that they not. Right. So if the law gives to me a right to insist on an unpunched nose, then their plans and is, 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 dis- is disappointed in, in some way, like I have taken from them, right? But we have such a strong moral intuition and, and very, you know, a, a whole bunch of different moral theories all point in the same direction that the puncher is, is, uh, uh, is morally not entitled to do that, right? And maybe you have some like law and economics type efficiency theories too, that a world in which everybody can just punch, like the world is more efficient if people can insist on the integrity of their bodies for the most part, although we don't do that. Totally. So in this case, the problem is that the uh, that space, the space in front of your face and behind the chair, right? Both of you find a use for, right? Like I want to use that space to work and open up my laptop and have some breathing space. The other person wants to recline, and if we assign the entitlement to the one who wants to recline, right, then that's at the expense of my use of that space. And if we assign me the use of that space, it's the expense of the person who wants to recline. Yep. And you know, Coase's idea is that. If it's, you know, after that, and I think that's the most important part of Coase's paper, right, is, is the recognition that that old idea of, of there being an uncontroversial way to point to a harm cause or to is solve wrong. The, is wrong, right? Yeah. And so it's a matter of policy, right? And uh, which, which of these you're going to want to uh, um, take a look at. Um, and so the idea is, well, if, if we could costlessly bargain, then the parties will always figure this out on their own. The one who wants the use of that resource the most will get it, Right. What law does when it assigns to one party or the other this entitlement is really to make one side richer, right? Um, because if you want to punch my nose, you're going to have to come pay me now, right? Because it's given me that. So the airlines, through the use of the button, I guess, have given at least control over that space to the person in front. And now people are trying to take it back by putting their knees up against the chair or putting on the <laughs> knee defender or something else, right? Right. But that's why, I, I, you know, that's why we talked about this the other day. The airline, in some sense, has sold, has sold the same space twice. But what it really has done is it's, uh, it's got, you know, well, if someone else got into your seat, right? If someone else, you came back and someone else had gotten into your seat and they said, I've got an airline ticket. And you said, well, yes, but you don't have it for my seat. It's clear that what the airline did was to sell you an entitlement to your seat, you know, 3A or whatever it is, right? Someone else decides to sit in 3A, and you say, even though you have a ticket, you don't have the ticket that gives you this space. The airline, the which is kind of the entity under which we're all operating in this mini system of entitlements, has assigned me that seat. But what the airline has not done clearly is to assign prior, is to assign the, the space between my face and the back of your seat. Some people say, yes, it has done that clearly because it has a little button, Right. And other people say, yes, just because the button is there doesn't necessarily mean that you can do it because there are all kinds of features of the aircraft that you could take advantage. Like, you know, you have the window shade if you're on the window seat, right? And presumably that in- includes the right to lift it. It's got a handle on it, right? So lift it and put it down. But probably, does it really? Because it doesn't really include the right to lift it and put it down like 50 times a minute, right? Um, 
Does it include yes. does it include the right to open it like on a flight that goes into the far north on an overnight flight and so it's bright outside and everybody's trying to sleep? If you were to leave that open, I think people would think you're kind of a jerk, right? Even though I really want to do that because there's all the ice down there. Yeah, how often do you get to see the Arctic? It's a crime, Joe. It's a crime that <laughs> Anyway. Um You've done that, haven't you? You've left it open. That's pe- what you're I really pe- trying to no, say. No, I peaked. Oh, okay. I peaked. Fifty times. It hurt me though. I was by the window and it, it hurt me. To leave and the last flight I was on, the airline actually did sell my seat to somebody else. <laughs> actually, I was thinking that when he said that it, hypo. It, was it like, does happen, you know, in fact. They sell it twice that way, too. You know, one might have thought that their computers <laughs> would make that not possible, but apparently it, it, it is possible, and we both had tickets for the exact same seat on the exact same flight. It was really fun. Well, we, we on the last show, we did, I mean, the, where we came down on this is this is not an environment where anybody thinks to engage in bargains. And there's probably really some, there's something very important in society, I think, about having zones of our lives which are governed by kind of etiquette and concern for others, where, where the et- rules of etiquette back up that concern for others, where market transactions would be, you know, like the proverbial turd in the punch bowl. You know what I mean? It's just like, this is not, this is the wrong place. Like, so someone leans back. What would, if someone leaned, if I had to lean back, because I thought it was like nighttime, everybody's leaning back, and someone, you know, says, you know, taps me on the shoulder and says, I'll give you $20 not to lean your seat back. Like, I'm not thinking to myself, well, how much do I have? I'd probably, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm going to put my seat forward again, because I realized that I've caused that person some pain. And, you know, I wouldn't enter a transaction there. It's the wrong thing in the, in the, the wrong thing in the wrong place. But Joe's exactly right that we really, we, this is a divide and conquer strategy on the part of the airlines. We need to be very mad at them because they are putting us in this almost barely humane um, situation in which they've got us packed in there so tightly that the that that's when you start losing your human courtesy, right? Um, right. So, so they're making us behave like the animals they are treating us like. Well, so they're creating <laughs> scarcity for their own, you know, or, or they, they've, um, in order to profit, they're creating more scarcity because right. the seat pitch right. is, is reduced. Correct. And then they are only ambiguously assigning um, that scarce space that remains. Right. And with, where there's scarcity, people are going to squabble over it. Like, why not just eliminate the ability to recline in some way, either by removing it entirely or by, as you've suggested on more than one, uh, in more than one conversation, Christian, um, making the buttons inoperable unless they're turned on in some way by the, at an appropriate time, for example, in an overnight flight where everyone is going to go to sleep and therefore most people would recline. I had another idea about um, that. Oh, cool. Um, reclining rows or reclining, uh, columns, I guess. So, uh, maybe the- non reclining. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you buy reclining or or, or not yeah. reclining because if you um and, and I thought this uh, of this too. So you you can imagine an airline where um the seats recline almost entirely, right? So that the seat pitch would come back and hit you in the face. But if everyone reclines at the same time, everybody in coach could be lying down, where your feet are basically under the other person's body. Okay, right? That's a possibility. Sure. And and in fact, it would be the most comfortable way to fly with the current density of people in in coach, right? on an overnight flight in which you wanted to lie down, right? Yes. Um, if everybody in your column, I guess, is reclining, uh, it's kind of a waste that it doesn't recline more, right? Good point. Uh, so, I don't, you know, I don't know. It seems like that that would be um, beneficial, and, 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 and yet we don't do it. Um, and so what, what it reveals is there's a coordination problem. If everybody in the same column could coordinate, we would think there's nothing wrong and indeed something, you know, salutary about allowing everybody to virtually lie down. Um, 
But there is this coordination problem, this idea of conflicting desires, and the airline's doing nothing to solve that conflict. Which suggests to me that it must be to their benefit to, to continue to create the, te- the risk of conflict. That all, they've figured out somehow that that's actually to their maximum benefit. Hmm. Or they wouldn't be doing it. And, 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 and because they're able to sell both the apparent ability to recline and then the advertised seat pitch with the unreclined seat at the same time. Right. The freedom from, from having people recline on you. Mm-hmm. Because the salience of that, well, if I'm buying the seat, maybe, you know, if selling, selling reclining and non-reclining types of seats would probably make the risk of getting reclined on too salient. Yeah, I, and, I st- and that might actually drive down the ultimate sort of the net sales of tickets or something like that. I, I still think, we're, you know, there's something really guttural about the opposition to seat recliners. And I, I certainly feel it because it's just it, it bothers me. I have to say when someone reclines in my face and I don't recline. Uh, uh, except in these special situations that we talked about. I have a somewhat I, different question. Well, I, let me just say this. Let me okay. just say this. I just want to reemphasize this because I think there is, there are few situations in society, I think, where someone's decision to value their own comfort over yours are exposed as obviously and physically as in the airline seat context. Mm. I mean, I just think it's, you know, it's very clear that the person has uh, completely discounted your comfort in favor of their own. Um, and, and maybe they discounted it because they're not thinking about it. Maybe they think people aren't bothered by reclining. Or they maybe, think you'll recline too. Or so they think whatever that it is. you'll quickly adjust to be as comfortable as they are. Right. But it is plainly a kind of selfish decision without making judgment on it. It may be, it may be, well, it may be a perfectly okay self-interested decision or selfish decision. It may be one that we think is people should coordinate around. I'm just saying that I think the reason it gets people so agitated and it's, you know enough where they're going to fight and throw beverages on each other, right, is because we rarely we we can often operate under the illusion that we aren't operating in a self-interested way. You know, there are very few places in life, maybe on the road, and road rage is another instance where maybe some of this is exposed. People cutting in line. Yeah, right? but people act, react viscerally to right. that, right? Exactly. And, and very few people break that norm. But that, but see, that's an unambiguous norm, isn't it? I mean, you know that if someone's a line breaker, they're a wrongdoer. This is a situation where selfishness of this kind has been tolerated and in fact the button on the seat seems the person says this is a license to be selfish in this scenario and you also have that license but the problem is that your selfishness is not going to be back on me so it's not a reciprocal situation it's going to be on the person behind you and so there's nothing you do you can do to protect yourself as against me you know except for the knee defender and now that's you know i don't know there's something about that i just don't i'm trying to think of other examples line breaking is a good one but it's but it's one where we've settled on what the right rule is, right? But it it it's similar in the sense that we get very very angry mm-hmm. out of proportion to the inconvenience um, to the person who's been cut in front of, right? It doesn't actually right. inconvenience inconvenience me that much that you cut in front of me, but I'm furious at it because it's so blatantly um, putting your comfort or needs above mine. Yeah. And you, then you start thinking, way. like, what if everyone cut? And then, right. oh, my God, I would never get there. And it's like, why are you being so dramatic? It's just one person. And mm-hmm. like, so if you thought about the actual harm, right. it would seem pretty minor. But it's claiming a privilege. The cutter is claiming a privilege right. for themselves that can't be exten- extended to similarly situated people. And so it feels like um, an outrage. And it is an outrage for that reason. Yeah. It makes you get your Kantian hackles up. Right. Yeah. So here's That happens the- so often. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the question I really have, which okay. is, if, if my... If, if, 
if your use of the phrase Kantian hackles makes me want to gay marry you, should the state be able to stop us from doing that? That's my real question. Um, if the state <laughs> doesn't, my wife will. That's a fair point and yeah. a separate point. Mm-hmm. What I'm wondering, though, is what should the state be able to do? So you wanna, you're, you're saying you want to move to the second part of the show. That's a way what, to say that. The part of the show that our illustrious guest has actually agreed to come on and talk yes. about rather than the stuff we're like talking we're about so far. I feel like we're using our precious time and we need to use it better. Well, <laughs> we could say that about all of our listeners too, Joe. <laughs> I agree. I agree. But they're, 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 uh, they're on board in a slightly different context. Yeah, so how do we, how do we want to approach this? So first of all, welcome in minute 25, Lori Ringhand. Welcome. Um, that, that's our mystery guest. The mystery is now solved. <laughs> um, uh, so yes, welcome. And how, how do you want to approach this, Joe? We're going we're to we're talk about Richard Posner's uh, opinion for the Seventh Circuit striking down uh, marriage bans in Indiana and Wisconsin. Yes. Um, and I presume that we've asked Lori on for no other reason that she's uh, from Wisconsin. Is that right? There is no better reason. So this is <laughs> you're kind of an expert witness on Wisconsin <laughs> norms and all that. Okay. Um, and we've actually talked about the oral argument in that case, and the opinion issued very soon thereafter, nine days, I think, thereafter. Uh, and so it's great that we get to talk about it so soon after having talked about the oral argument, where I was um, quite critical of some of his distemper. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this at, was the very last show, wasn't it? Because we I, had a break. Correct. We were, we are, we were on hiatus last yeah. week. When I, I, was, I was sick, and Joe had family in town. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Sorry, listeners. There was also... Um, I thought we might or might not, but we might talk about there's a, at, at roughly the same time, there was a trial court decision that was made in a same-sex marriage case challenging constitutionality of the exclusion of that kind of marriage in Louisiana. And that's a noteworthy case because it may be the only one uh, since the Windsor decision last year by the Supreme Court uh, where a lower court judge has said, I'm rejecting the contention that same-sex marriage is a, a constitutionally, uh, constitution prevents a state from, from prohibiting same-sex marriage. So, Lori, which one, which one do you want to talk about? I, they're both super interesting. Did you? Well, yes, I, yeah. I, I think the Posner opinion on the Seventh Circuit is the sensible place to start because mm, okay. in some ways the Louisiana opinion is a, um, it, it, the Louisiana opinion picks up and deals with the thing that Posner just kind of kicks aside in some ways. So cool. I, I would do it in that order. Yeah. Right. And I have not actually read the Louisiana opinion, okay. um, but, uh, oh, yeah, let's focus on the, but Posner that, that won't stop me from talking about it. Of course not. No, no. So like, yeah, let's talk. So this is an amazing opinion, right? I mean, whether you agree with it or not, and whether you agree with all of it or not, um, and and there was a, there was a slate piece. Did you see this um, slate piece talking about how amazing this opinion was? No. And it started off. I, I forget. Who wrote who, it? I forget slate? who wrote it. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, uh, was it Dahlia Lithwick? Or no, was, no, 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 oh, no, okay. no, no, no. Was no. it Emily Basil? No, 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 no. Some, some someone else. <laughs> you, you act like I'm making crazy guesses. No, because in fact, I, those are two legal a, commentators. It was a guy. Slate. It was I a guy. I did see this. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and he said one of the reasons it was remarkable is because Posner was not swinging for the fences and trying to write for the ages and. So I agree with most of what was written there, but I actually disagree with that part of it because I think this opinion was about, was, uh, or, or does stand for a significant, like, you know, um, I don't know, judicial philosophy of Posner. So like, this is, this is, I think one for the ages in, in um, and I, I don't know if you, you agree, but I think the methodological framework 
that he puts out there. Um, His four-part test. Yeah, the four-part test and the the attempted dismantlement of uh, um, the dismantling of uh, of the levels of scrutiny and his framing of what it's about, his kind of realistic, pragmatic approach to that, the inclusion of cost benefit. I mean, there's, and we'll, we'll talk about what this is because we'll assume the listeners haven't read it. I think it's eminently readable and, and we're going to link it up so you, you can take a look, but, um, yeah. but so I actually think that opinion, I actually think it's exceptionally this is, readable actually. Yeah. But I think this is about much more than just writing a good opinion to resolve this one case. I think there was some, a serious like theoretical, um, uh, uh, you know, throwdown that he's trying to engage. I mean, he's trying to do something affect the theory of the law here. Well, I think that's right. Um, and the the tiers of review analysis that he doesn't do and replaces it with his four part test that looks more a lot more like the sliding scale that we used to see from folks like Justice Stevens. Um, I think you're right that that is um, reaching for something much larger. I think mm-hmm. in the context of or much more theoretical. Re- uh, more theoretical reshaping of the law. But I think in the context of the marriage equality debate, it's an extraordinary opinion um, for two very different reasons that would have been there whether he dismantled tiers of review or not. Um, I think it's extraordinary, first of all, because just the devastating effectiveness with which he dismantles the at this point, almost incoherent arguments in favor of the state interests um, in restricting gay marriage. And for for reasons that I'm sure we'll talk about, but can be basically summed up by the words Justice Kennedy, um, the number of things that states know they can try to assert as legitimate state interests has become, or the, the list of things that they can assert has become quite narrow. Um, what Indiana does here is assert an interest in channeling um, what Posner calls throughout the opinion accidental births into heterosexual marriages or into marriages with two parents. Um, And that argument doesn't make a lot of sense, and Posner just pretty much destroys it um, using empirical data and just basic reason. I think the second reason, and the the somewhat more um, subtle, although that's going to be an ironic word, um, for reasons that are very right. obvious, if you've read the opinion, um, the, the second reason it, it is extraordinary is because, and this is not necessarily a good thing, but he does not bother to treat the opposing arguments with much respect. Um, and I think right. that's actually kind of an important move in the progression of these types of things. Because when we go through these big social changes, there's this transitional period where even people who feel quite passionately um, on one side of the issue, on, on kind of the forward progressive side of the issue, um, nonetheless understand that people of good intentions and well, well, well-meaning folks on the other side can have different opinions. So, so we tend to frame things somewhat gently and try to be respectful. Posner drops that. Yeah, um, this is yeah. not a respectful opinion. And there's a lot of snark and that... Like the argument. Yeah, exactly. Like the oral argument. And that... There are pros and cons to that. Um, it's very alienating pe- for people who aren't on board yet, um, and that's not necessarily a good thing. I think there are questions about professionalism that are fairly raised, um, but it does, I think, make a mark a significant moment in which he's saying, "This is now the type of opinion, the way we treat that that we can fairly in civil society talk about the same way we talk about segregation." Yeah, of course. I think. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that's right. a meaningful moment. And and we talked about this last time because I'd written about this uh, on the blog uh, that that one of the key one of the reasons he was able to savage the attorneys at, at argument was because all of the arguments which would have been 
case closed two decades ago were unavailable mm-hmm. because they're socially unacceptable to make mm-hmm. in at least in the elite circles among which these lawyers travel, I guess. I mean, you know, uh, and you see the same thing in the opinion, right? The, the, uh, the reasons they've been reduced to giving are transparently ridiculous. Um, so you can't, you can't just come forward with variations of gay sex is icky and right. expect to win the case like you could 30 years ago. Whereas, right. So 30 years ago, Bowers versus Hardwick, literally almost 30 years ago, uh, uh, two years shy, um, that would not only be the argument you would make, it would be the opinion you would write if you were the Chief Justice of the United States, which is what happened, right? So you read Bowers against Hardwick, and it's basically Chief Justice Berger saying, gay sex is icky. Are you guys kidding? You think you have a right to do that? It's terrible. It's disgusting. Right. Right. Case over. Right. Um, and so now you can't, yeah, if you got up and stood at the lectern and, and said, you know, quoting Justice Berger from Bowers against Hardwick, this is disgusting. Right. You'd be... It, the it judge would, would look at you like you lost your mind. It would, it this would is be not like a valid to, way to argue about the state's interest. It'd be like trying to get up and quote, wasn't it Justice Holmes saying, you know, however many generations of idiots is enough, mm-hmm. right? In a case in which you're trying to deprive uh, mentally disabled people of, of rights for some reason. Yeah. I mean, there's there's some arguments that, that were winners that just cannot be made. And 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 so I is, you, you say uh, professionalism. This came up in our conversation last week, too. Um, I think what you're alluding to is maybe maybe I don't know if you have the same if you have discomfort over that. I don't think I do, but uh, over like on the one hand, there's a value to not having you know if if loving were re-argued today, mm-hmm. no one would have trouble saying that you, you guys are backwards idiots and there are no arguments and it's totally irrational and go back to where you came from. Uh, but we've had to treat respectfully all sides on this as people's opinions have changed and that kind of respectful treatment has been kind of key right mm-hmm. to the transformation of people's views about sexuality uh and now as you say we drop it um and but you seem to like be of two minds about whether that's a good thing i'm very much of two minds because as a as a general matter i don't appreciate um snarkiness in judicial opinions uh i, I think like the it's, go figure line yeah uh, <laughs> I, I, I think it's modeling a type of 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 professional behavior that's not very professional um and particularly in opinions like this that students are going to read uh i don't want my students to think this is the way you should treat people in front of you who are arguing um and doing their job um so maybe the maybe it's not so much that i'm of two minds as i f- would like to see I think there might be reasons for treating things in judicial opinions differently than the way we socially and um, with, with outside of the legal context talk. Maybe. I, I'm I've, not sure. I've assigned in property before some cases involving, um, uh, well, interracial uh, marriage cases from, there was one in South Carolina in the early part of the 20th century, and then another case involving treatment of a slave uh, during the slave era, uh, partly to show how respectful legal language mm-hmm. is used to talk about cases in which now we clearly see one side is very, very evil. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, I think I generally agree that um, I'm less concerned about kind of the professional tone of words. Like, you know, when Scalia has one of his dissents ridiculing a bunch of arguments in, in kind of snarky tone. Kind of. Yeah, well, I mean, it just depends on the opinion. Some of them a lot, some of them less so. And I don't, have a an inherent problem with that my my substantive problem is with arguments like that that make difficult problems seem easier than they really are 
through an appeal to kind of an emotional, like, let's gang up on this art. You know, it kind of appeals to that bullying side of you. Not saying that he's a bully or anything like that. I mean, we'd have to go opinion by opinion to look through, I think, good examples and bad examples. And we're all prone to this. When we see an argument we think is ridiculous, it's so much easier just to go down the reasons you think it's ridiculous than it is to engage with the argument and figure out, like, if, if people are fighting over this and, and people have brains on the other side, and they do, like, why? What is the core? What is what is their understanding of that argument, which is different th- th- than mine? So I get that. It's the, the desire through snark to make an easy problem seem, or a hard problem seem, mm-hmm. seem easy. I'm less worried about tone until it becomes disrespectful. I think professional is a word I don't normally like, but respect is a word that I like very much. And, um, and so... That's the question. At what point do you go from a need to respect and when is disrespect a very important public norm? As it would be if someone tried to support, say, racial segregation in the schools in an argument mm-hmm. today, I think it would be very important for the court to show disrespect to that argument, right? To say to say to lawyers, you can't just come into court with any old argument and expect to, expect to be treated like... Um, you know, we're having a genteel debate about any other legal issue. But, There's but, some but things you can raise. Yeah, that no lawyer is going to come into court today, um, and this might not last forever, of course, but no lawyer is going to come into court today and actually make that argument you just made. And the fact that that's you, you, you have to make up a hypothetical rather than reach for a newspaper to get to that example might tell us that we are still in the point where our public discourse requires some type of um, if not respect for the argument, um, respect for the individual who's attempting to make it. Uh, yeah. Right? Uh, yeah, I because guess. There, and, and, there are and, reasons that arguments that strike us as absurd and ridiculous don't get argued in front of the Seventh Circuit very often. It, but that's because we don't have this kind of social change very often. And and I, and I there were a couple of points in this opinion that did seem a little bit personal, like the description of bringing this thing up at oral argument again. Mm-hmm. What was the thing that was brought up? I, it doesn't really matter, but there was a reference to the, the no-fault ad- divorce. Yeah, the no-fault divorce. It was an, it's, that was a reference to the advocate himself or herself. I'm not sure. Uh, Him. And yeah, they were both, ar- both. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, that was my memory of the oral argument. Yeah. But uh, And so that's a little bit personal, but most of the... Um, most of the lambasting was attributed to the state. Like the state has this view. And so whether it was the state through its statutes or the states through its briefs, it was these things don't make sense Mm -hmm. and are patently ridiculous. And it's time for us to recognize that it's ridiculous. And so this process uh, by which things move from where they are now to where you describe them with respect to segregation, racial segregation today, part of that might be facilitated by in an official forum, consolidating the view that this kind of argumentation is now out of bounds. But compare this opinion to Brown, right? Brown makes it very clear that the you know, arc of the universe is bending the right direction. <laughs> right. Um, Toward justice. And yeah, it's think. an inspiring opinion. Um, it's a very readable opinion. Um, but it doesn't engage in the type of snarky, almost gratuitous rubbing the face in the stupidity of your argument. Do you think it was reasoned as well as it could have been? Brown? Yeah. Um, Brown is clearly right. It is a super precedent, but... You know, there's a whole book about what Brown should have said, right? Um, and well, I mean, that—that's. I don't know if you want to go down that whole conversation. Well, no, we don't need to go down the whole but, conversation. But, of course, but you know, um, I mean, you know, n- p- even even the opinions and the legal positions that we we grow to treat as obviously wrong were, of course, supported by what were accepted as reasoned legal arguments in their time. Um, neither judges nor litigants just make this stuff up. 
um, it only opinions become obviously wrong because our norms change. Um, not exactly. Yeah. So, so, but could it have been? I, I want to answer your question yeah. about do I think it was as well reasoned as it could have been? It really depends on what you think the goals were. Um, Brown is an opinion that speaks the language of constitutional law to all Americans. Um, if you can read, you can read Brown and you can understand what the court is saying about our constitution. Um, and I think in that sense, it could not have been better. And maybe that's the yeah. sense that it should have been written. T- maybe, maybe that was the right choice. But, but for its length, isn't this opinion eminently readable and oh, absolutely. teachable? Absolutely. But, but it's worth asking, especially because it's so readable, that um, what does the snark add because you yourself, when you were Thank describing you. it, you were more respectful than these throwaway lines in the opinion when you said, you know, th- this argument is, um, is simply can't be credited. Now, there are moments where the opinion does say something like that. It's th- this argument can't be taken seriously or this argument can't, I would, I guess, have preferred can't be credited maybe. But um, so what does it add to, to have the go figure, which is this very kind of gratuitous huffy gratuitous line i i think it might not add much of anything and indeed it might detract so uh, you know i think the um the i know you and i have different views about this because we've gone through them so many times i I do favor it and but i i see i take the point and i think it's a the very unusual case um where that kind of talk is 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 warranted um but, but I think there there, there yeah. is a, um, a a part of this conversation that I do want to pull us back to because I think it really is interesting. There are so few moments in time that look like this, right? Where right. We, we can see forward and we know our grandkids are Christian's grandkids. Um, they're, they're <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to have any. They will look back on the anti-marriage equality arguments the way we look back on Plessy v. Ferguson. Um, It will be that obvious to them that it was a ridiculous, outrageous, biased, obnoxious thing to say. So we can look forward and know that's coming. Um, But we can also look back and know that our parents and grandparents were not bad people. They were blinded by their time and their era and their biases. Um, And I think sitting at that fulcrum point has some real benefit to making us think harder about what constitutional law does, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because it you can't say from 2014, you can't sit here and say wrong from the day it was decided, the way we can now very comfortably say about Plessy. Um, because we can see that the world looks different um, going back and going forward, and we can understand the reasons why people took the positions that they did, even if we now reject them. And that forces us to realize that constitutional law and equal protection in particular, you know, if equal, equal protection is about treating like things alike, the reason equal protection law changes is because our perceptions of what is like and what is not like change. Yeah, I, I mentioned on the show before, and, and probably in conversation with you, that you know I certainly think that that it's a basic political decision which the court has been authorized to make, like to recognize within our norms what what the community of equals is, right? I mean, right. Well, I, I would go a step further because I don't want anyone to mistake your comment, and I don't think you meant this as buying into this law politics dichotomy, right? Um, it 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 is a legal decision that can only be answered through judgment. Um, right. And, and but and it's a very, can, I mean, I'm, I, I would just phrase it that way because it's very important to me to uh, 
I, I think, to, to reckon with the fact that judges do make decisions. Politics, morality, um, judgment, all of these are a kind of synonym for cho- for choices that are uh, have, uh, as Hart says, an open texture, right? There's a range of things you can choose for reasons. Right. And those reasons can be within a, a, another another range. And- well, that takes us down to Louisiana. Yeah. Um, because to a large extent, that is what the district court judge in Louisiana hung his hat on. Um, he... he, he played the democracy card. Mm -hmm. Um, He said, you know, this is, we don't know what this means. This breaks from tradition. um, And why should courts do this? Um, And I think once you make this argument about changing norms being what drives perceptions under the Equal Protection Clause of what should be treated alike and what should, or what should be treated as like and what should be treated as not like, um, then you do have to answer the question of, well, why courts then? Right. Right. Well, I... It's a it's a strange. I mean, that's he makes the argument that can always be interposed, mm-hmm. right? And and so and Posner Savage um, is that. I mean, Posner well, Savage. And it came up both at oral argument and therefore was addressed in, well, the, in Posner's opinion. Posner's answer is, um, you could make that argument against all constitutional law. And that's true, but it's it's also kind of not really an, an answer, right? Because um, you could make that argument against all constitutional law, but that doesn't explain why if changing norms are the thing that drive our understandings of what's acceptable under the Equal Protection Clause or not, um, why should courts be the decider of that instead of legislatures? And the answer, when, when Posner says, well, that that's always the case— Okay, then maybe the answer is courts should not be the deciders, right? Well, so it, you, but I, and I don't believe that, but I think yeah. Posner's answer doesn't answer the question. I think he does, but it's in a different part. I mean, he gives he gives an answer, but not a theory, and that's because you can't do everything. But his his answer is that um, courts should be involved in scrutinizing costs and benefits when what's at stake is discrimination against a particular a particular kind of discrimination. And he le- lays this out in terms of uh, against groups that have immutable characteristics or, or, uh, or at least uh, characteristics which are very difficult voluntarily to change. These are things like religion. And what, so but he's, wait he's a minute. Le- you, yeah. you, you, missed the sec- you, you skipped the second half of that sentence, which is important for the, which is what makes this point complicated. He talks about immutable characteristics that are very difficult for individuals to change that have been tied to historic discrimination and that aren't relevant to people's ability to participate in civil society. Yeah, I know. And of course, that's precisely the piece of it that's what we argue about. It right. seemed perfectly obvious to people in 1850 that African Americans um, were not qualified or able to participate in civil society. Right. And, and, and they were wrong. I was, obviously. you know, that's exactly. I, I agree completely, and that's where. You know, I mean, I think I think Posner knows that as well. Exactly, and that's opinion. why I say he didn't really answer the question. He didn't. I, I think what what you point out is that. So, all right, the, we we did the Caroline Products episode, right? And so what he what what Posner points to in that section is a different way of understanding the gateway that courts go through before they start to scrutinize costs and benefits of legislation and make their own political uh, decision and substitute it for that of the legislature, right? And that is when the discrimination picks out one of these groups. Right, immutable. He uses the language of immutable characteristics or very, very closely held beliefs that are difficult to change, 
where there's a history of, of antagonism, right? And that's a, a slightly different formulation than discrete and insular minority, mm-hmm. but it's a similar kind of idea, right? And, and, and if he were to go further, same thing. if he were to go yeah. further, he might have a similar kind of representation reinforcing theory or some other theory that kind of tells you, well, why should we scrutinize in that situation? But he doesn't, you know, he can't do everything in one opinion. So he says that. But then as you rightly point out, he says, well, wait a minute. When you point, when you, when you do pick on those groups, but the group that has been, historically discriminated against and the characteristics are really hard to change like someone who has a compulsion to murder other people mm-hmm. right uh that there are such groups that um don't fall within this range of groups as to which we will substitute our decisions on legislation uh for for the for the legislatures and in that thing that small little loophole lies the entire debate right mm-hmm. that's the claim and and that's where judges make their political decisions right that's where that's where the the judge can say um although i have and, to say and, that and it's the one they've been assigned to where you can make the argument that really is the role appropriate space for the judge's decision in that regard and there and everyone is also making other role appropriate decisions sometimes it's legislators sometimes it's popular vote sometimes it's executive action but there's that it's it's a space where you can say this is part of the task we've been assigned. Well, and I think the reason that it's role appropriate for for the courts um, is because the politics that courts do is different than the politics that legislatures do. They answer to different incentives. They have different time frames. But perhaps most importantly, I think, and this I think is a bit maybe Dworkinian, I mean, the, the, the thing that courts are doing in that scenario is they are really pushing us and pushing legislatures um, to make sure that the laws that they are enacting are actually consistent with things that they're willing to say they believe, right? And that, that's the things you can't say in, in, a, in, in mm-hmm. polite society anymore. Mm-hmm. So, so they're pushing what, what, what heightened types of review do. It's, it's the court playing its role in making sure that the reasons um, that, that are consistent, that fit, with what we are willing to say publicly are our values and our ideals are actually matching up with what the legislature is doing. So that's the way that the judiciary plays its role in advancing these social norms. So the social norms advance on their own, but judges make us realize that sometimes our laws haven't caught up with what we're willing to publicly say we believe. Right, which is exactly what happened in this case. Which is exactly what happened in this case. I think it's interesting that we, you know, when we... So we talked about Caroline products because we were talking about our favorites. Like this whole thing, this whole thing. You like Phil Milk? That's disgusting. <laughs> um, this whole thing looks staged. Like the fact that we're talking about this today, when before we had, we began with our favorite cases. Our first episode on favorite cases was Christians about Plessy because of the Plessy descent. Right. Then our favorite cases, we had this nice detour into Erie, which is about thinking about the role of the federal courts and the state courts and legislatures as well as some structural issues. Because that's one of my two favorite cases. The second of my fa- two favorite cases is Caroline Products, the next case we talked about. And now we're talking about this case, an opinion that probably may take may replace caroline products on my favorites list (laughs) right because it's so interesting so provocative so fresh he's trying to reframe all of equality law in his own vision which has lots of benefits and lots of minuses um and 
it just looks like we you... staged this entire thing to lead to this discussion of the, but we didn't we didn't know <laughs> we didn't know he would be on the panel that heard the argument we didn't know his opinion would come out so fast we didn't know that it would say the things that it said serendipity you're saying Jeff. but it is like the 2014 caroline products it really is i think it's that he's he is swinging not because just for the he's bleachers, dismantling for the tiers sky. of review? Hmm? Be- because of what he's doing with the standards of review? Or just Absolutely. Because, he's, okay. trying to, he's trying to persuade us. And he's clearly been looking, I would say, clearly, I believe firmly, that he has been looking for an opportunity to lay out, to, to, to go into the temple and overthrow all the tables for the sellers and say, there's a new way. And this is it. I'm going to be contrarian. Cool. Um, well, actually, he, that may very well be what he's doing. Um, I think that part of his opinion is going to be completely ignored by the Supreme Court. Um, they're going to have so much going on. And <laughs> the opinion that they write is going to be so consequential. Um, they're not going to they're not, they're not do that, too. Oh, um, I don't think I, – I don't, and I don't think that's his hope. I don't, I don't think that he thinks – that um, and let's back up and just say for the listeners uh, what the um, structural point is. The structural, uh, the the normal way, as the as listeners have heard on past shows, that that courts get into the business of second guessing legislatures when they do it at all, is first of all to ask whether um, uh, the the discrimination. And let's just stick to equal protection to make it easier. Um, affects a suspect uh, or, or is is around a suspect what has now become classification, right? And and I think we've talked before about how, at least I think that's misguided. It should be focused on suspect classes and that this difference between classes and classifications is what is going on in the affirmative action case. Have we yes. talked about that? I we don't have. Know. But in any event, what the court is looking for is um, a discrimination around a few discrete categories like race, national origin, and then gender, right? And a few others. And finding a discrimination around one of these categories uh, will cause the court to say, you know, we're, we're going to look a little more closely than just figuring out if there could be some barely rational reason for this thing. Instead, we're going to insist that there be an important or a compelling governmental interest, depending on how far we go, and that the means chosen, in other words, this piece of legislation, um, uh, is narrowly tailored to achieve that end, right? So there has to be a fit between the legislation and the very, very important interest that the government says the legislation uh, is aimed at. Now, that's the traditional mechanism. And there are all kinds of debates over whether about why do you do that. I mean, one explanation is that the court should basically be a passive entity and should let democracy work unless there's a suspicion that the legislature has done something for certain forbidden purposes, like to um, put a stamp of inferiority on a, on a class of people which has historically born that stamp of inferiority and so what we should be looking for is something that makes us uh, suspicious that an invidious motive is afoot and uh, that might be a law that picks on a race or 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 on women or on some other um or on an unpopular religious group uh but the court it's become caricatured now so the court just looks for any law which affects race and it's always strict scrutiny or any law that affects gender, whether it's men or women, whether it's intended to help a long, um, uh, um, a long kind of uh, hated minority, or 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 not, right? So uh, that's how it's worked. And what Posner's doing is very, very different. It's um, you mentioned Dworkin earlier, and what's really interesting is you know I don't think anyone would call Posner Dworkinian in his attitude toward law. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> uh, right. But this opinion is so. Dworkinian in the sense that he 
is looking at the whole body of the law and like Dworkin's Hercules, picking out principles, right? And then arriving at what he thinks is a, uh, is a, a method for processing through these questions consistent with our basic principles, which makes the best sense of the whole, you know, pastiche of the law here, right? Um, it's positively Dworkinian in a, in a way. So, but what he does is he says that these cases, you know, this is what they say they do. But if we look at the cases, another way of seeing this and a better way of seeing it that, that, that helps us to see the judge as kind of pragmatic decision makers issuing judgment where needed uh, is that we're looking for these particular kinds of groups and problems. It's when, you know, uh, and, and we, the stuff we just talked about, right? The uh, immutable characteristics or the ones which are difficult to dislodge, these kinds of things. So you have to find a, a criterion for finding laws to be suspect, right? And he uses that language of suspicion. And then he says it's a matter of um, figuring out, first of all, whether the government has um, some offsetting benefit. And he uses that word offsetting, even though later in the opinion he says it's not a matter of how uh, valuable it is. But there's already cost-benefit going on, even at that first stage, because the government has to offset this this harm, right? And it may be a kind of a qualitative offsetting, like, you know, just, there has to be one. There has to be some public benefit. And then at that stage, we get into what he calls the, what he assimilates to the overbreadth and underbreadth idea overbreadth being that the the law sweeps in way too much way mu- a lot more than the reason would seem to justify um or underbreadth you know you say that this is a very important um thing that we need people to do and yet you only require women to do it right so it's underbroad in the sense that you should cover more people um but he talks about that in cost benefit terms and so what he's done is he's kind of replace this idea of fit with one of um of a more generalized searching into the um range of tar- of ju- of legislative targets that would justify this enhanced cost benefit and then very honestly saying we're going to second guess the legislature with legislative style cost benefit judgments and so i think it's you know it, it exemplifies posner's pragmatism and his penchant for being honest about costs and benefits. And, and for not really caring about legislatures. Well, I mean, I, I think he's... I, but I think the existing doctrine doesn't care about legislatures for certain once categories. Once the signals are correctly the signals are there, and, yeah. and he's trying... He does something slightly different with the signals, but it's not totally dissimilar. I, I have a lot of sympathy for moving toward that type of perspective or, or that type of analysis. I think in many ways it is more honest. But I think there is a risk to it. And the risk is that this, one of the things that the the kind of doctrinal tiers of review do is they force conversations like the one Posner actually has, but doesn't, m- n- nothing turns on in this opinion um, because of where he goes with it. That, but, but they force the judicial conversation about whether and why certain groups and certain laws um, should be subject to more aggressive judicial review, right? So in this context, he has a conversation about whether or not um, sexual orientation should be treated as a, a suspect class subject to, to more heightened review. Um, so so when, when you have a, a very formalized, doctrinalized analysis, there are certain questions you have to ask and have to give answers to. 
what 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 is the reason for treating this class in this category or in this tier of review and why? What are the government's reasons for doing this? And are they good reasons or bad reasons? And how good is the fit? It structures the conversation and makes judges answer certain types of questions and give reasons. Um, if you go to cost-benefit analysis, that can get both honest and also really squishy and loosey-goosey in ways that can not can be less demanding it can 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 be less kind of rigorous in demanding reason giving um and right. i would worry a little bit about that and that's not i i don't want to dichotomize it because you know people um some justices are famous for not telling you why they put a certain category in a certain box and just say it is and moving on um but when the tiers of analysis are um treated kind of seriously they can force a certain type of judicial conversation that i think is important for the judicial justice's own internal decision well, making. That's a conception of uh, of the tiers of scrutiny. This is intermediate heightened scrutiny, the kind of thing that we were talking about earlier. Um, that's a conception of it, which is kind of lost favor in the court, right? That mm-hmm. that really it's a test for sincerity. Like you say, this is the uh, you say this is a compelling interest, and we're going to second guess that, right? Because this is this is a bad thing that's happening. But we're going to be looking at narrow tailoring in part because we're suspicious that what's really going on is, you know, you're creating a cast or, or something mm-hmm. like that, right? And so uh, that's a very different thing than an uncanalyzed, you know, kind of re-legislation uh, uh, re- of the thing, like just going through the whole legislative process again and saying, is this justified? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I certainly have, you know, sympathy. So, so in an affirmative action case, right, un- under the view that at least I attribute to you, maybe wrongly, um, you would... Look and see, you know, we, the, this uh, University of Michigan says that it wants to uh, be conscious of race in order to achieve the benefits of diversity and to um, increase representation by minorities after decades and decades of systematic governmentally backed exclusion and continued social isolation, right? And certainly um, uh, kind of a, um, a, a racially correlative lack of resources, right? I mean, you know, that. Um, uh, that maybe blacks in Michigan are poorer as a class than whites, and that this has systematic effects that interact with race beyond just that mm-hmm. disparity in and of itself, right? Um, and so that's our our reason. We want to increase diversity and overcome these barriers in the long run, right? And the question is, knowing that, um, are we suspicious, right? Is there a reason to be suspicious that actually what Michigan is trying to do is to create a caste out of white people? Now, we did this in the Plessy versus Ferguson show, so I don't want to redo it all. But in that sense, the tiers of scrutiny are about testing governmental sincerity in once it has stated, uh, you know, once it has stated a legitimate purpose unrelated to discrimination, whereas the cost benefits approach would almost like relitigate in the legislative realm this whole thing like you've said right. that you, this is the reason but like what are the real costs it seems like affirmative action might actually be harmful to minorities right. and is that a question judges should relitigate or is it enough that the legislature made a different but non-discriminatory choice in that regard i don't know one um one thing that i think has probably invited people like him judge posner to freestyle a little bit more in this context, specifically when we're talking about marriage equality, is that um, especially taking into account, as Laurie says, that the doctrinal framework that's developed can bring a kind of crispness and rigor to your questions and your answers in the way you go about thinking through the things that need to be thought through. 
you know, especially in light of that, it is somewhat remarkable that in Romer against Evans and Lawrence against Texas and United States against Windsor, that the court seems to have gone out of its way not to talk that way when it comes to sexual orientation. So some courts of appeals have put themselves through the question, what is the right level of scrutiny for a classification based on sexual orientation? Windsor itself, Windsor itself, the Second Circuit concluded that strict scrutiny was warranted by going through a number of factors. The Ninth Circuit, in a case, I think, about jury selection last year, put Mm -hmm. itself through this, reached a particular determination. So the lower courts felt like they had to... But you you teach these cases, Lori, I don't. But my recollection of them is um, you search high and low and you're not going to find tiers of scrutiny or, you know, it's just not there, right? There's not... A marshalling of cases, a marshalling of thinking. What's the right way to treat a classification based on sexual orientation? Right. The, the, the Supreme it's not Court discussed. Is, the Supreme Court is clearly sitting this one out. Right. They're, they're waiting to see what develops in the lower courts, letting the lower courts develop this question before taking a stand on it. Um, there are obviously pros and cons to that, and and one of the cons of the the, the kind of doctrinal tiers of review, I, I talked about the positives of it, one of the big negatives of it is that it's it lacks nuance. So, so if you can't you know, jump through all the right hoops to get to strict scrutiny or intermediate scrutiny, um, then at least doctrinally, you're going to end up with very, very little um, pushing of legislatures for reason giving and making sure that the reason gets sense makes sense when you're in rational basis land. Now, of course, as you both know, and I'm, our listeners as well, I'm sure, um, th- what what the court says the doctrine is and, and what mm-hmm. actually happens um, probably gets closer to a sliding scale, although not really a... a uh, cost-benefit analysis necessarily. It's not the same type of analysis. Um, but we have rational basis review. We have robust rational basis review. We have intermediate review. We have strict scrutiny. We have exacting scrutiny. We have super strict scrutiny and viewpoint discrimination mm-hmm. cases. So we've, we've got a pretty broad spectrum that we pretend is two and a half things. And, and sitting out the, the particular discussion doctrinally on sexual orientation as a classification in the Romer case, the Lawrence case, and the Windsor case, I think a pro of doing that is that it elicits lower courts not only to go figure out for themselves what they think, and then the court can get the benefit of percolation, but it also elicits things like this opinion, which is, oh, what the Supreme Court has telegraphed very prominently is that you can discuss the rights of gay and lesbian people and the importance of their equality as citizens in our country without using that framework. And so why not develop further ways to talk about it without using that framework, Maybe which I'm, this opinion is a vintage case of, right? It's like, I don't need all that stuff. I'm going to talk about it in a different way. And I think that kind of judicial creativity, you're right, I think. It's not Justice Kennedy's opinion for the court in the marriage equality case, whatever it winds up being called, and he will be the author of it, um, it seems to me. Uh, he will not talk this way. Right. He will right. not talk the Posner way. He'll find his own way. Right. And it, it'll be... He'll it. use the word liberty a lot. He will. And, they'll, and he'll use, think of the children a lot, which Posner did do. Um, but he'll, so there'll be this pastiche of stuff. Um, and maybe some of the Posner stuff will make it into that pastiche, little bits of it. Um, but I still think it's a, a, a fascinating, even though it won't be the template for equal protection. And, and frankly, maybe it shouldn't be. Uh, but... Uh, so it's okay that it won't be. Uh, but uh, I do think it's remarkable. Well, I think the problem 
For me, and I think I just want to be a little fairer to Posner maybe than my explanation earlier of the cost-benefit, uncanalized cost-benefit made it made it sound, because I think there's more to it. But I, I think it, it it's also an attempt to solve a problem that he sees, because the, the fact is the Supreme Court's been dishonest about the review that it's applied in um, in cases involving gays ever since Romer, right? So Kennedy applies rational basis. Everybody knows that if it's the kind of rational basis that applies anywhere else, it survives, right? Because there's always an explanation available. Kennedy tries to create a new doctrine that says when the when when it's possible rhetorically to transform the state's interest into one which expresses animus, that's an illegitimate interest, right? And that allows you to take out a whole bunch of arguments. But really what's going on is this kind of heightened review, right? It's like I'm looking more closely now. I, it's not I'm it's not any old uh, interest that I can dream up that will um, satisfy our weak standard. It's like, I want to know what your interest is, and then I'm going to see whether it's really equivalent to a kind of hatred or a kind of discrimination, uh, invidious discrimination. What's interesting, though, is that certainly gender, and I believe also race, um, the the things that have become the heightened review categories, um, went through exactly the same process. This is not unique to sexual orientation. There's a whole bunch of early gender cases, even before you had um, the the court kind of briefly went to true strict scrutiny, then hobbled back and forth to intermediate. Um, But even before that happened, you had a series of cases where the court said it was applying rational basis review. It didn't quite use exactly that terminology because the terminology hadn't developed fully yet, but it was talking about these laws as plainly irrational when they plainly weren't under a true rational basis review, yeah. right? Where they, they're administrative convenience. It saves, saves the state some money. It works for most of the people most of the time. Those are perfectly rational reasons if what we're doing is truly applying rational basis review. And, you know, the early race cases were kind of all over the map on this stuff, but there was a lot of language of invidiousness, um, understandably in their time, um, but it wasn't it was invidiousness is not a rational basis. It wasn't the language and vocabulary of strict scrutiny. So I don't think it's unique that there's even decades of dodging on this before the court actually says, yep, you're now officially a, a class that warrants strict scrutiny. And my point, my point was going to be that, um, that I see part of Posner's new method as an attempt to solve a problem that he sees with that, you know, there's a fear on the part of the court with embracing too readily strict scrutiny, mm-hmm. because once you do that, unless you're going to water down other strict scrutiny cases, you're going to be striking down every law that makes a distinction based on sexual orientation. And certainly in the 90s, they weren't willing to do that because it would have been meant immediate gay marriage um, and maybe uh, um, other, other Exactly. And then, and then and then other situations involving private discrimination, would have, everything would have been more difficult uh uh, for the court to kind of slow things down on if it had done that. And so you have this uncomfortable period where this happens. And and I see Posner's uh, proposed, you know, relabeling, as he calls it, which I think is more than that, as a way to create a more spectrumized or, you know, nuanced approach that uh, um, would allow a court to engage in strict scrutiny-like things and yet still uphold the law, right? Because it's not an uncanalyzed cost-benefit, which would allow a court to do that quite easily. But it's saying, you know, let's look at the reasons the state is giving that it cites as benefits to this law. We're going to, you know, substitute, not maybe not completely substitute our judgment for this, but we're going to think hard about those benefits and whether we think they're really going to arise. And we're going to think really hard about the costs here, and uh, we might not offset them totally, but we're going to see, you know, whether there would be benefits to going beyond this law so that we doubt that they 
really did it for this reason or whether there are you know too many costs from going too far so um and i haven't said that well but the the upshot is that this technique i think allows it, it it's more flexible in the sense that you can more easily get to a kind of heightened scrutiny with it without necessarily committing yourself to striking down every law that raises the classification agreed and I think he thinks that it's preferable because uh, in a way he thinks that I think the development of this uh, area of law has been retarded by a kind of fear of, of embracing what the court is really doing. Now, I don't know if that's um, – you give an alternate account, and it may well be that the rigid – Darcy. Hi, Darcy. Uh, that it may well be that the rigid binary on-off nature of rational basis strict scrutiny is – used in such a way and maybe even a little bit dishonestly that over time um it gets to where it needs to go right you know? and and it doesn't really matter what words we use these words are just symbols for a kind of a kind of guided political decision making that the court makes and it's going to use these symbols however it's going to use but it substantively it's going to get to the same point at the same time well, it's clearly a trade-off between a, a type of pragmatism and a type of transparency Right. Yeah. I, I mean, the 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 court is very strategic in not leaping straight to strict scrutiny, precisely because it would there, there would be backlash associated with that. Um, there would be a lot of laws that then they would be logically committed to striking down, which would the people were not ready in any sense to have struck down in courts themselves might not have been willing to do it. So there's a pragmatism to not um, saying that's what you're doing, but it does come in a cost to transparency. Because in the in the in the cases where they are striking striking the laws down, they're clearly not using rational basis review. And so, a way that a framework like his that uh, that permits you to incorporate fact sensitivity into what you're doing, um, and as you say, allows you to not make pre commitments, um, is c- can help you avoid having to make little pretzels later when you <laughs> so you pretend you you oh yeah i said that formula and you're making an argument that the formula has to drive me to a certain result no that's not what the formula drives me to so i have to be fact sensitive without saying it right and he's he's telling us well you actually can find a way to be able to openly fact sensitive not pre-commit um, and of course, then the critique of that is, well, that means there's you haven't been constrained as much. Maybe you'll do something inappropriate with those facts later because facts can be so are so much more malleable in the way you judge them and weigh them one off against the other. Uh, so yeah, trade off. I mean, I think that's but, a great that's a great way to think but, about it. But but the concern with with um, Posner full stop, as well as with um, <laughs> Posner's cost-benefit analysis as approached and kind of described in this case, there's no space in that in, in that approach f- for deference to legislative judgments, right? I mean, it, it is just a, a do-over, right? In, in Posner's approach? Isn't it? Uh, I, I think he gives I, – I, deference is a funny word here because, of course, you – he would give complete deference in those cases which aren't which don't implicate the uh the gateway threshold yeah, and this distinguishes him from the Louisiana decision as i understand it because mm-hmm. you know most distinctions the law makes don't fall in this category of discriminating against these immutable characters so a lot of stuff is just out like mm-hmm. the courts just yeah. have to hands off so, so only he's still stuff looking for category. that triggering he's still looking for that triggering um sus- uh, the thing that makes you say oh there's been a targeting here that's uh, that's illicit 
maybe because it can't self-correct, maybe because it's it shows that there's uh, an indul- a self-indulgence in an historical animus that is, yeah. is not appropriate. But he's I think he's still looking for the targeting. Mm-hmm. He's still looking for that. But he and and as we talked about early on in the conversation, um, you know, it has an empirical part and it has a political part. And that political part is whether that, whatever that distinction is, is relevant for society, right? So the judge has kind of a dual decision to make, which is kind of interesting, right? And that's, maybe that's part of Posner's transparency too, right? By identifying those two things, I'm going to tell you what I'm doing as a matter of rule and what I'm doing as a matter of kind of just the raw power that is invested in the courts, you know, and this is the power pronouncing what our society thinks is important. And I don't know that he would be that transparent, but I think that's what it does. Did either of you find his discussion of um, the moral reasons or lack thereof odd? Um, and just for background, of course, as you know, the, the, the reason that the state doesn't assert um, moral reasons, moral grounds for, for prohibiting uh, marriage equality um, is, of course, because Justice Kennedy told us in Lawrence that that was not a acceptable or legitimate state reason when, when it wasn't coupled with some sort of actual harm to others. Um, so, so it's perfectly understandable why Indiana and Wisconsin didn't make those types of arguments. Um, they're strategic losers. And it's perfectly understandable why Judge Posner pointed out that they didn't make those arguments. But I just thought the things that he did say about moral arguments were odd. Cause it, Can you remind uh, me what those were? Well, I don't he, recall he right now. He talked about how we have lots of laws on the books that um, – are about moral judgments um, without harm to humans, and he used the the animal, animal cruelty example. laws, mm. um, and and he also almost made it sound as if. Well, I don't know. I I thought they were odd. I couldn't quite figure out what he was getting at. There in was that a big mill digression too. That a big John Stuart Mill digression, which I think was. I, I think something the similar. I think the upshot was, and I, I could be wrong because I, I I did read this section a little bit quickly um, for the second, <laughs> and I read it for the first time slowly, and then of course promptly after a week forgot most of it, and right. then I read it again before the show, and I read this part a little bit quickly. But my memory of it is that there is a there is a category of law which is well um, understood as as justified. Um, that, um, but that is nonetheless not justified by a strict accounting of costs and benefits. Um, and so his, I think he's got this sense that there are kind of cost justified laws using, like I said, standard cost benefit analysis with a broad, broad notion of what are costs and benefits. But then there are other kinds of laws which aren't justified strictly on that basis. And, and I thought it a little weird that he used the animal cruelty example, right? Because animal cruelty is illegal no matter how beneficial to the human being who's imposing the cruelty. And mm-hmm. I guess the idea that, that that's not about cost in terms of the animal because the animal's preferences don't count in kind of a rational right. actor type system. And he's not willing to, to get that broad with it. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I think you could easily conceive of that as like not qualitatively distinct. You know, all laws are owed to their costs and benefits and the distinction between what is moral and not. I mean, one way of seeing morality in in legal theory is that it's basically all judgments which are otherwise open, right? And and indeed, all judgments are open, except our morality for some is so narrowly tailored that it seems there's only one answer. This is like the nose punching example we talked about with the knee defender thing, right? Um, so yes, I mean, I think that the 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 animal example is both a moral judgment, but one which is like cost benefit justified it's just we have, if you have a broad enough notion of, of costs and benefits but again this is my memory of reading it very quickly uh, toward the end so 
did you find it odd for that reason or what, why did you find it odd? Honestly, I just found it odd because I couldn't figure out what he was trying to accomplish with that. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, like, it would be obvious there, there would obviously be reasons for him to explaining for him to explain why moral arguments weren't in the briefs and weren't being made. Um, but his examples didn't seem like a good fit and it almost sounded I, odd really is the only word, but it almost sounded as if he was disagreeing with Justice Kennedy that moral arguments should be off the table. And that seems unlikely to me, but mm-hmm. it almost reads that way. I, mm. I honestly, I just couldn't figure out what he was doing I've got to read in those it again. paragraphs. Because yeah, I thought it was like just highlighting that there was no moral argument. And it was almost mm-hmm. highlighting the fact that the moral arguments that would have won the day case over, like we said 30 years ago, were absent and unavailable. Yeah. And he's like just beating them overhead with the fact that hero, guess what? You're not making the argument. I know why. You know why. And, you know, but maybe, no one can say maybe, it. Maybe it was an effort at snark that I missed. So. <laughs> it could also be a way to show this back to this targeting idea that so uh, it, for the step about is is this uh, is it for a reason that relates to someone's ability to play a role in civilized society? Because I think you could say of the animal cruelty prohibition that it is targeting people who want to indulge in a certain uh, behavioral preference. Uh, but for a very good reason, that people who engage in that kind of depravity aimed at non-human animals might actually be quite troubling with respect to human animals as well. Uh, and it, now he doesn't make that point, well, but it seems, seems to me to be, he could have made the point. Right. And what's what's odd and confusing about it is it actually reads as if he's making exactly the opposite point, right? <laughs> that That he is using animal cruelty laws as an example of a law that is based on morality precisely because it doesn't have any harm to society because hum- he does it he, he is discounting or not even mentioning the possibility that the problem with these laws actually is that they harm human beings by doing weird things to your brains and making people who kill small animals grow up right. to be Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. Um, so Spe- yeah. speaking of cruelty, mm. we're over an hour into this. It's um, true. But uh, but that this is fine. This has been fantastic. But I want to make sure that we have time. I think it's time, Joe. Oh. We, we've been away from speed traps long enough. Now, I did not, um, I did not, you know, I, out of, out of uh, um, I, I think, um, due regard for our illustrious guest, I did not make you go on the record with whether you were a recliner or a defender, a knee defender. And I won't ask you to do that. In fact, um, I, I think it's important that you not do sitting it. Sitting between the two of you, I don't think I dare. No, don't. Yeah, don't, 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 don't. I, I, I don't know what your view is on this. I think, obviously, that people who are recliners are monstrous. Um, but I won't, I won't make you identify that way if that is you. Just, you know, don't worry about it. But I think that, um, I think we do want you to go on the record about speed traps. Do, Remind do you, me of the speed trap dispute. Okay. Um, this is, you know, this is a specialty of the podcast. Nutshell version. <laughs> You're driving down the road. I you, don't do that. You observe, you observe uh, a, a police officer with a radar gun. And you're not stopped because, of course, you're Lori. You're very careful. You're not speeding. But you observe this is maybe maybe the, the officers at the bottom of a hill at a place where people might otherwise, their mind might wander a little bit. They might go a little bit over. It's pretty clear why the officer is there. And then you see people coming the other way. Um, do you flash your lights to warn those people of the existence of the speed trap? How fast is the car coming toward me going? Hmm. Good question. Um, That's new. We no one's ever asked. No, that. we we have dealt with this a little bit before. Be, well, I, I'm not going to prejudice the the witness here, Joe. 
But we'll talk about this. I don't think anyone's asked the question immediately upon us. Immediately asking, upon I don't asking, think that's right. Said that before. Right, that's salient, though, right? Because if they're of going, and, and explain what you mean by that. What are the what are the parameters here? Um, uh, if if a car is just um, doing what all of us do, which is driving a little bit over the speed limit, and the cop is sitting in a, a obvious trap, just wanting to have the opportunity to get a cheap ticket. Um, or impose an expensive ticket, as it may be, um, I would probably flash my light so a person who's not doing anything different than what most of us do all the time doesn't get caught in a speed trap. However, if someone is going 100 miles an hour tearing down the road, they're creating a um, a public safety hazard, and I would not give such a person any warning. You're only too happy to let the police... I think the police officer should stop that person and beat them up. And then and then helpfully... help you know, get them off the road for the rest of us so that they're not driving 100 miles an hour next to us. Exactly. So in other words, you're, you're taking the law into your own hands and, and thinking to yourself about the reasons for the law and whether you agree with them. And if you do agree with them, you're gonna, uh, then you're going to allow someone to be caught. But if you see someone who would be, you know, kind of uh, ensnared in the web of the law... Um, unjustly. Unjustly, you're going to help them evade the law. Now let me just say this. I I think I I'm I'm exactly with you. We have exactly the same view that if someone is dangerous, right? That's where I want to but but if someone is just a little bit over, you should warn them. And I think you're a monster if you if you don't. I think it's just the decent thing to do. It's the, of course. It's the obvious and decent thing to do, right? It also depends on the type of car they're driving. There are some cars I just don't like. Is, are these cars that are rolling coal? Have you heard about this? <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> well, we'll, 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 we'll finish that offline, I think. And just but. to remind listeners, I have um, basically, and I've, I've tried to develop explanations for why it's true, <laughs> but, but I'm, I'm, I feel a certain level of detachment from the explanations as I do from the entire thing. Um, because I just, don't, I just don't really process it as an event of, of this sort where it's an opportunity to warn someone about something. I notice the police car, maybe, maybe not. Um, and then it sort of leaves my head as soon as I've seen it. I had no idea you were so callously indifferent to yeah, your fellow citizens. Apparently, yeah. I, I'm, I glad say- that he, I'm glad that you've embraced this. Let me just say this. I'm glad he's embraced this, Lori, because uh, in on past shows, this his refusal to flash lights and, and his you know, condemning of his fellow citizen to uh, arbitrary tickets uh, was justified by his empirical belief that humans could not see lights during the day and so flashing one's lights was ineffective it is not the case that i said that i firmly believe that i wasn't sure (laughs) what i raised as possibility was differential visibility and i even did a test in a parking garage but what i'm saying is i now see the way in which it's i was struggling to explain my own behavior as a mystery to me because it was all it's all about the detachment of me from this entire situation Right. So I didn't really understand why. I still don't really understand why, because I don't care. Let's just revisit. I, d- I just want to emphasize again that Joe performed an actual experiment, flashing his lights during the day, and then asking himself, can I see them? In a parking garage. To test the idea Correct. that one can see lights during the day. How did you flash your lights and look at them at the same time? Weren't you sitting in your car flashing? Yeah, and I was able to see the reflection all around me in the garage. So that That's not really the right test. <laughs> well, I'm willing to do another test. If you'd like to suggest a test, I'll well, I'm Oh yes, I'll, it's please. To no, test this is this, a terrific but... <laughs> idea. Joe, if you could this week for your homework. Okay. Just go outside and look at lights that come on during the day and tell us whether you can see them. Neat. I will do that. 
Mm-hmm. Now, Lori, I, I really... There's a porch light right there. We could probably test it. <laughs> probably it, it you'll have the last word because I rudely interrupted you because I wanted to make clear that Joe had done this um, oh, fascinating I was just, experiment. You, you haven't actually tapped my expertise about Wisconsin politics yet. So so, so let oh. me leave you with this Ooh. this final thought, um, which um, I think is, is, is worth pointing out. Um, in 2006, which was when the Wisconsin Constitu- state constitutional amendment went on the ballot, um, you, you'll both to, remember- To ban uh, gay marriage, correct, to be clear. Correct. Yeah. You, you'll both remember the politics of that moment. Um, and a lot of those state constitutional amendments and referendums um, in that 2004 to 2006 era were, go- were, were being proposed um, and aggressively pursued as get out the vote yeah, efforts right. um, for conservative voters. Right. Public officials were embracing them. They were using them as that tool to make sure that their committed voters came out and voted. Um, what is stunning to me about this Wisconsin case is the remarkably low profile that um, the governor of Wisconsin, Scott Walker, who has presidential aspirations um, as a Republican candidate, um, and the Wisconsin attorney general um, have the the low profile they have both taken in this. Yeah. Their comments have been um almost non-existent and very very tempered when they have been made. I went to the um the, the attorney general did not argue the case. He sent his assistant attorney general and I I went to their web pages and neither the governor's web page nor the AG's web page um were, were made a peep of this. Yeah. Um there was a brief um, thing on the attorney general's web web page informing the county clerks that the um, injunctive order was still in place and they couldn't start issuing right. marriage licenses yet just because but of in the very ministerial opinion, but in very ministerial yeah. ways yeah. and i think that's a stunning development this went from being something that was being used as a highly motivating p- political tool ineffectively um, as it turns out i think ineffectively right? yeah. i think um but to 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 a a thing that someone who wants to run for president as a Republican candidate um, is keeping as much distance between himself and that as he possibly can. I think people who had been attracted to using this issue, but who themselves were not necessarily committed to it, were probably stunned by the just avalanche of um, of cases and political uh, events in, uh, was it last spring? Not, not this last spring, but the spring before, right? This is when all of the... Um, uh, a whole bunch of cases came out, and was that when Obama came out too? Or was that uh, came out in favor of gay marriage, or was that like a early? Couple of years he ago? did that earlier, I think. Yeah, it just seemed like a lot of these things happen this, at the same time in advance well, of Windsor. Well, it's all been so rapid in development that it, it has been well, breathtaking. My mother has lived her whole life in rural Wisconsin, and mm-hmm. when she said to me a few years ago, it finally dawned on her that. The guy who ran the floral shop was probably gay in a little town. Um, and, and, and and when she said to me, well, you know, and I guess if he wants to marry his friend, that's none of my business. It's like the ship sailed. We're done. Uh. Right. That's it. Bye, ship. <laughs>